is Javier Reyes with Animals as Leaders, and you're listening to Iron City Rock. Hey, this is Chris Caffrey from Spirits of Fire, Sabotage, Trans-Siberian Orchestra, and you are listening to Iron City Rock, so crank it up. Hey, this is Bo Howard. And I'm Landon Herring. And we're from the Naked Gypsy Queens, and you're listening to Iron City Rock. Oh! episode 480 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, John, coming to you from the Iron City of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, bringing you the best rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and blues talk on the net. Episode 480, Jumbo Episode 3 special guest, well over an hour plus content. So strap yourself in. We are joined by Kat Von D. Kat, um, many of you know from her television work. You may be familiar with the line of makeup that she was involved with. Uh, she's got a uh, music project and that will be kicking off a tour in Pittsburgh uh, in the end of February. So we're going to talk to her in just a few moments about that. Also, speaking of world tours, we're joined by Chris Caffery, who was just days off of finishing the Trans-Siberian Orchestra tour uh, and had a chance to catch up to talk about the second album from his band Spirits of Fire, uh, a powerful metal album. So we're going to talk to Chris in just a little while. And then joining us finally, a new band out of Tennessee called the Naked Gypsy Queens. We're going to introduce you to them and talk to those guys about the new music. Uh, Kat uh, Von D, many of, as I mentioned, many of you know her, is, is a tattoo artist and, and she had a lot of makeup. And I know when we announced the show on our social media, we got a couple of people that said, oh, you know, isn't she, you know, the, the tattoo lady? That is true. I mean, obviously, that's gosh, rose to fame. Uh, but. She's got a new album out, her debut album, full length, and it's got uh, sort of an electro-pop kind of uh, sound to it, but uh, I think it plays upon kind of some of the darker uh, imagery and stuff that you would kind of expect from her, and I think it gives it a very atmospheric thing. So really cool to get a chance to talk to her about the album. Again, they're going to be in Pittsburgh on February 28th at the Thunderbird Cafe for the very start of the U.S. tour. So you can get tickets now at uh, the Thunderbird Cafe. Uh, going to be a pretty cool, intimate venue with uh, kind of a mega celebrity. So without further ado, we're going to play you a little bit of Kat Von D's new music. Get into that interview with her. Dolphins 
gentlemen, my pleasure to welcome to Iron City Rocks. We have Kat Von D on the line. How are you doing, Kat? Hey, how are you? Good. Doing very well. You are going to be coming into our fair city of Pittsburgh to kick off your tour. Uh, your debut album finally available in, in August of 2021. But obviously the world made it very challenging to release an album in that period of time. And, and you're going to finally be able to get out on the road. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, I think people obviously know you from television, from, you know, your kind of um, business world with different products, etc. But what can yeah. folks expect from you musically who may not be familiar with your album yet? Sure. I mean, I think most people know me from, you know, the tattoo world and makeup and all the other things that I've done. But um, what a lot of people don't know is that music has always been my biggest passion. I've been playing uh, piano since I was five years old and was classically trained. So it has always been like, um, you know, my, I guess my biggest creative outlet throughout my life. Mm -hmm. And I started writing music. I started writing this album about 10 years ago. And, you know, life got in the way of life. I was so busy filming the TV show and, you know, doing book tours and all that stuff. And I kept putting it on the back burner. And it wasn't until um, I decided to sell my makeup line uh, two years ago in order to make the time and um, the space for 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 my music. Right. Um, you know, because I, I love releasing all the projects that I do, but more than anything, I'm just so excited about actually touring and playing live. So yeah. obviously, like like you said, you know, the lockdowns happened and um, everything was just put to a halt, obviously. And so we're excited to finally finally be able to get out there and, and play for all our fans and um you know because i think that music kind of takes a different shape when you're seeing it live absolutely versus just listening to it on the record was yeah. was there consideration from a business standpoint of not releasing the album being that you know this was kind of a debut we, we, we ran a lot a, a lot of bands who who maybe were gaining a great deal of momentum pre-pandemic i can think of of a number of them that come to mind and then you yeah. throw in you know, everything kind of grinding to a halt. You can't get out. You're doing, you know, virtual Hi, everyone. It's George with Magnum. Hey, George. Um, was there ever a consideration of maybe saying, you know, let's let's wait until the world gets better? And, of course, at this point, who knows when that might even be, where the world goes back to any kind of normal. But, but did you consider that? Um, yeah, you know, I think that there was, you know... Um, obvious obvious hesitancy in releasing the album in such a volatile time but at the same time i think that this is when we need to be as as creative as possible too mm -hmm. i think that music and other forms forms of art are i mean speaking personally it's like you know especially for those who like battle depression or any other mental mental illness it's like you know we need these creative outlets and so i felt that you know there's no harm in releasing the music and right. The tour can wait until the, the time is right. Um, ideally, obviously, I would have liked to just release the album and go on tour straight away. But, but I think everything happens in the way it's supposed to, and we're we're patient, um, as you know, as eager as we are to get out on the road. Yeah, and also it gives it gives your fans, the, you know, the opportunity to discover it and, and kind of live with the music for a period of time. I know, you know, sometimes when you go to see a sure. show, it's it's really learn the lyrics. Yeah, exactly. You know, to, to get that kind of singing along or to internalize it to make it, you know, part yeah. of the soundtracks of their lives. From from a band standpoint, I mean, obviously the music uh, very synthesizer heavy. What kind of like musicians or do you yeah. have visual performers in your show? 
Oh yeah, I mean, I'm I'm such a you know I'm a sucker for like storytelling through visuals, and so I I you know as as a, a huge fan of music myself, I kind of hate when I go and see a band play that you really like, and then they just like are standing there next to mm-hmm. a microphone and yeah. not moving. Uh, you know, I might as well have just stayed at home and listened to to the album on my on my uh, you know my speakers. So I really spent. Uh, a lot of time with my with my band to create uh vis- not just visuals but just performances in general so uh yeah we are you know a, a synthwave band um but every sound is accounted for so you know my bandmates uh, are comprised of two synth players and then uh our our contortionist Bryn who is amazing and does crazy things with her body and so even though she doesn't play instruments she's such a a crucial part of the of the visual storytelling and we have like you know choreographed uh numbers and we've actually written interludes and intros that were designed for Bryn to have her moment on stage and so yeah it's it's pretty exciting um as far as the the visuals that people can expect to see you know I've curated and directed um vignettes for each song and I worked with Linda Strawberry who um, has done art directing for all of the Smashing Pumpkins tours and a bunch of other bands that everybody loves. And her and I, we, we love a lot of the same things. You know, we love finding the beauty in the macabre. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I think it'll be interesting for people to to see the show unfold because it's not just going to be us standing at a mic. You know, you're going to um, walk away with a real show. Is visually very consistent with the with the videos. You know, I've gone through I think all of the videos that have come you know off of the album. Is is that kind of a for fans of that kind of visual art? Is that similar in theme? I know obviously you have the contortionist you mentioned. She's she's yeah. amazing and, and you know to watch. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think as far as the visuals, I've like I said, I've created little like video vignettes for each song um, that are you know strategically placed. Um, on large LED screens and timed with our, our, you know, synced with our music. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, for example, for the song Fear You, even though the music video is us out in the desert, you know, breaking glass, the, the actual visuals for the performance are um, these really beautiful slow-mo shots that I, that I took of my friends in like a full latex uh, fetish outfit. And they're just like, cuddling and having these really intimate moments but with ha- with latex in between the two of them mm. and um i love the footage itself i actually plan on releasing all the footage that we filmed for the live shows just because it's so aesthetically pleasing yeah the um in when you were writing these songs you mentioned this was a, you know kind of a 10-year period were they songs that kind of equally span that period of time and you know when, when you're Obviously, when you write, you're you're kind of giving people a window into to your world, to your soul. Is that kind of a sure. you know? Does it kind of span that time pretty equally, or is it a little more recent as far well, as lyrical content? No, I mean I wrote I wrote I wrote these albums. Uh, I, I, sorry, I I wrote these songs from this album you know ten years ago or a little bit over ten years ago, mm-hmm. and they were very specifically written about a person one mm-hmm. person and you know it was a, a relationship that was uh, somewhat dysfunctional <laughs> sure that's all <laughs> and, good albums uh, come from all, that <laughs> of course anyway i mean i think heartbreak is the big is one of the greatest muses one could have to write songs and mm-hmm. I, I i love sad love songs and that i don't think i 
I would know how to write a happy one. So, yeah, I mean, they specifically speak to one person, which obviously, um, if you fast forward to now, I'm happily married, I have a beautiful boy, and I don't really think about that person anymore, but but that's the beauty of music and writing is that, you know, you Mm -hmm. process feelings and moments in time, and uh, you get a beautiful song out of it. But, um, you know, when I sing these songs, I, I know what they mean, but I don't necessarily think about that, that guy anymore. You bring up a very interesting point when you, when you mention your life now. You have a, you know a child, and, and I know gone through that experience, and it can really change you. When you when you look at writing future material, do you then have to sort of put on um, not necessarily take yourself back to that particular relationship, but do you have to kind of almost think of, of writing as a third person so that the music doesn't sound like a Katrina and the Waves song, you know, because your life, you know, takes turns, you know, you. You've gone through a lot of things. You're in a very good place right now with a you know, good relationship and kids and stuff. And you don't necessarily want to come out with like a bubblegum synth song as the follow-up. So do, you, do you have to kind of channel yeah, some know, of that? I mean, no, I mean, listen, I, I, I love my husband and we get along great, but we have our ups and downs just like anybody else. Sure. Like, Trust me, he's giving, he's giving me enough content to write. It's <laughs> <laughs> not sad songs, angry songs. <laughs> oh, well. We'll, th- we'll thank him for that. If he may not thank you himself, we will. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean that, that's a good point. Yeah, it's just I often wonder, you know, when when I think about this, you know, this being your first album, you know, and you know, your yeah. audience has known you for a long time, so you're obviously not 19 making this first album. Where a lot of bands, when you think of it, yeah. you, you get that first. As a, as a musical artist, you get a first glimpse into them of songs they wrote when they were 17, 18, 19. You know, where, where you're coming at this from a slightly more mature perspective, um, you know, yeah. and, and you've but you know, like we're we're working on album number two now, mm-hmm. and it's like, um, you know, some of the songs that I'm currently working on, um, you know, I'm I'm tapping into, um, you know, drug addiction and how mm-hmm. that correlate that can correlate to love, and I think those things, um, you know, are are still very meaningful and they. Sure. They still strike you at your core and have a me- like a melancholic overtone. Um, you know, it's I'm I don't necessarily only have to write about like my romantic relationships. Yeah. I think there's plenty of um, dysfunction in the world to to, to talk about. And yeah. I think that that's that's you know, um, it's I think music is a good therapy for that. Yeah, and there is certainly no shortage of dysfunction in the world. That that's yeah. one thing that that, yeah. that I think everyone can count on. Um, when you yeah. look back on, on your musical, I mean, you've been kind of, you know, I think when people think of you, your career, even before the album, you know, you kind of had this tangential relationship with music, you know, we've seen you in Motorhead videos, yeah. etc. When you were growing up, yeah. what kind of influences did you draw musically? What were the kind of things that, you know, a 19-year-old cat was listening to? Um, well, I mean, I got heavily into music at a much earlier Mm -hmm. age you know i I discovered punk rock music uh when i was about 12 years old and uh i think at the time you know i was living in a small town and we had you know moved here from mexico Mm -hmm. and so there wasn't the internet or you know um instagram Uh, you know you were kind of creating your own space at at least Mm -hmm. for me it was that way there wasn't other people that that looked weird like i did Mm -hmm. and um and you know i think that that's why I, I responded so much to kind of the outsiders music you know i wasn't listening to whatever was on the radio at the time i think it was like backstreet boys or something like sure, that yeah. <laughs> um 
and you know I was I was listening to the Misfits and you know other other bands like that. And then after soon after that, um, I really discovered uh, my passion for metal. You know, I I think I I really loved um, you know Judas Priest and Metallica and things like that because having grown up playing classical music, I understood the complexity of um, I, I guess like the technical advancement of that style of music, sure. whereas punk rock music was mainly like you know power chords, mm-hmm. and so I, I really loved that. And then it, and then you know, once I graduated to post punk, you know, like Susie and the Banshees and the Cure and Depeche yeah. Mode, that's where my heart really belonged because it was like a combination of everything that I loved. You had, you had, um, you know, great vocals like you know Susie actually knows how to sing mm-hmm. same with dave gahan and um and even robert smith and then you had also the technical aspect of you know the marriage between guitar and um analog synthesizer sounds and 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 then on top of that was the lyric uh, the the lyric aspect and i really i'm a sucker for poetry and i love well thought out lyrics that you know that you'd want to get tattooed yeah <laughs> and so i i think that's a lot of people assumed I was going to release like a, a metal album just because yeah. of course I love metal and I have a lot of friends in that world. But to me, I, I, I just, you know, I love the hopeless romantic aspect of music and, um, and I think that's why it makes sense that I, I make the music that I make. Yeah. And that's re- really an interesting thing to hear you say, because I think a lot of artists are a little bit afraid of kind of bending genres more than, than maybe mm-hmm. we need to, you know, I, I listen to a lot of the same things you mentioned, the Slayers and the Anthrax and Metallica, but I'm a sucker yeah. for anything Martin Gore wrote. You know, you mentioned Dave Gahan. Oh, I've been, for sure. You know, totally overdosing on Depeche Mode lately. So when I listened to your album, I was kind of refreshed to hear it because it was not Thanks. necessarily what I expected, um, you know, based on things you did. You know, you kind of make Thank assumptions you. of where things are going. So it was it was a really a, a cool course. listen. And, and uh, I think the visual aspects of it, you know, blend so well with you know you as a i don't want to say a brand but as a persona you know it's it's certainly you know i think works very well so from the live show i mean are you planning on doing kind of the full album or or are there some new songs that work their way into the set yeah i mean i think right now we're in the early stages of writing the second album so i don't know if i would have any new songs prepared but we are working on a few covers that we're going to alternate on different states um, in different shows that way it's not the same set every night um, most most of the the album will be able to play there you know I did a, a, a duet with Peter Murphy from Bauhaus who mm-hmm. I'm a huge Bauhaus fan and a huge a huge Peter Murphy fan as well and that song for example we won't play live ever unless Peter Murphy's there because there's no way you know that voice you could sure. never replace that voice so yeah yeah well yeah. if peter wants to come into pittsburgh we'll welcome him as well um i i know you're, you're doing the, the vip and you've got a really cool ultimate kind of upgrade that, that includes kind of hangout yeah um, it's great to see that kind of back in music because that was the one thing i think coming out of the pandemic a lot of people were you know a lot of bands kind of really paid you know the, the touring cost on on some of these meet and greet type of things, but it's great for the fans, I think, especially so. That's available. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's 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 that fan connection. You know, I've yeah. um, you know any anyone that's followed me for uh, any amount of time knows how much I I, I truly love connecting with people, especially mm-hmm. in person too. And um, I think giving 
them an opportunity to come and spend time with me and the band and, you know, whatever, take photos and just hang out. I mean, that's a really special thing. You know, when I would go on my book tours, I would, you know, there's a lot of people that will sign a book from behind a table. And I was like, get rid of that table. Yeah. I'm I'm going to stand here and I'm going to hug every single person I see. And, um, and I think that's important. You know, I think um, I don't see my fans as fans. I see them as friends to a certain degree. And um, especially when it comes to music, you know, I've always shared all my favorite you know obscure bands with my fans and it's so cool when like i remember specifically a moment on twitter a long time ago even though i'm not active on twitter anymore i, I feel like uh, that was such a great space to like promote bands that no one's ever heard of and i, w I would put like for example a lyric to uh john at napolitano or a concrete blonde song mm -hmm. and then to see another fan on uh, you know across the the country complete that lyric it was like oh my gosh I, you know i feel like less alone in this world you know like yeah. oh you love the same things i love and and i love that you know and when i i mean i will show off and i will say that my fans are the coolest i mean i have the most artistic just compassionate fans to have ever lived and so it's exciting to be able to share this new side of my life with them yeah yeah, I think I think it'll be fantastic. Well, again, you're, you're going to be coming into the Thunderbird Music Hall in Pittsburgh on the 28th of February. It's going to be opening night of the tour, so we wish you all the best. We will see you when you get to town. Stay safe, stay healthy, and, and we will see you in, well, it's only about a month now at this point, Kat. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. See you soon. All right, Kat Von D's new album is available now. It's called Love Made Me Do It. Uh, the tour starts the 28th of February at the Thunderbird Cafe here in Pittsburgh, so awesome chance uh, to get to see her if you go to her instagram page there's a link uh, it's just the cat von d there's a link to purchase tickets there's also the meet and greet options which we spoke of in the interview so cool chance to meet a pretty cool lady so i'm going to turn our attention now to another uh, fantastic musician as i mentioned he had just been in pittsburgh doing the trans-siberian orchestra show at the ppg paints arena uh, Chris Caffrey. Chris, obviously, you know him from Sabotage. You know him from the Trans-Siberian Orchestra. If you've ever seen the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, he's kind of the de facto star of the show. Um, he's got a, a side band on Frontiers Records, Spirits of Fire. Uh, much more metal, even than, I, I think, more metal than I would personally call it more metal than Sabotage. Um, they are releasing their second album, Embrace the Unknown, on February 18th. Uh, it's available on Frontiers Records. If you want the vinyl, it's available in March. Uh, so we're going to talk to Chris about that band, Spirits of Fire. All right, ladies and gentlemen, my pleasure to welcome Iron City Rocks. We have from Spirits of Fire, Trans-Siberian Orchestra, Sabotage. We have Mr. Chris Caffrey on the line. How you doing, Chris? I'm doing good. How are you doing today, John? I am doing exceptionally well. Um, very pleased to get a chance to talk to you. You were just in Pittsburgh um, as we talked off mic uh, just a couple of weeks ago, doing a show with the Trans-Siberian Orchestra, two phenomenal shows. Um, but probably more interesting at the moment, you've got an incredible album coming out in a matter of about four weeks with Spirits of Fire with the second album, um, which features yourself and really kind of an all-star cast of, of some pretty heavy metal. And, and this is, for the metal fans, probably something a little, little more teeth to this album. Can you talk about you know, kind of what the mission statement of Spirits of Fire is? Well, I mean, the, the basic mission of it was to be a metal band. I mean, when we initially did the very first record and I got contacted by Frontiers and, you know, Ripper was involved at that point, they wanted us to kind of 
channel into our past and, you know, mm-hmm. being sabotage Judas Priest and, and to make metal music. And for me, that's just my natural go to. I mean, that's what I do without trying. So it was kind of just I, I was having trouble at that time because I was working on a solo record and a Spirits of Fire album. And mm-hmm. it was kind of like, which I got to make sure I try to separate these. So when I did this second record, I just made sure that was all I worked on. So I mm-hmm. was really kind of focusing on that. And my my brain was 100 percent on that record and what i thought people you know i knew what they liked about the first one and i think i kind of knew in my opinion what was missing from the first one in some ways so i just really focused on making some good music and with the second record really all i did for 99 percent of the time on these songs was music the first record i was writing lyrics and melodies for things too right this one i just did the music and that's kind of what i wanted to do so when um, we knew that we had to get a, a different vocalist involved, that was, I think the main target was like, hey, we have to see who's going to to make this formula work. And right. when they came to me, I mean, I was not the one who who found Fabio. They, they, the label came to me about it and we had our producer, Aldo, that was working. And I was like, well, let's just see what he does. So I, I sent them a bunch of songs. I think they had maybe 14 or 16 songs for me and then, the producer, he, he picked the ones that he liked that he thought, you know, would, would make a good, a great record. And we kind of just rolled it around that. And then I started listening to the, the vocal ideas and I'm like, wow, this stuff is, is going to work. So it, it went from there. And I think the, like I said, the main focus was just to make a, a good metal record. I mean, we had the time, obviously more time than, than usual for some people. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm off most of the years. I don't really look for a lot to do from, the end of TSO until the next TSO. If I have, you know, shows coming up where people offer me tours or I'm doing records and I do this stuff with the, with Jimmy Stir and his orchestra in my off season, but I don't really pursue that time being used. So for me, it was kind of a, it was funny. Everybody locked down and hid during the pandemic. And I'm like, this is what I do all the time. So yeah, <laughs> like, you're, you're the world ready. became, the world became me. And, um, I think everybody was able to focus a little bit more on this being in that, not that I'm, being greedy about getting their time but i think that uh the isolation factor allowed everybody to be in that studio at home and and wherever they were to do these tracks and you know when the world was normal you know steve was out with testament everybody was doing their thing and and so to get the time to do the record a lot of times it's like oh wow i got to do my tracks for this album and you throw it in and this was basically what people were doing it and to me i hear that in this record it sounds like this band was stuck in a room for a few months and yeah. that's what i like about it i think the overall feeling of this record feels and sounds more like a band are you, are you when you when you write do you typically try to isolate from more than one project at a time i know you've had solo albums you've done obviously work with other bands um is it good to kind of get in that mind space, maybe go back and listen to some of, uh, you know, some of your roots as far as the bands that inspired you to get into heavy metal and, and kind of just say, I'm going to, you I know, think, soul you know focus. What, we, we do that all the time as we write songs. I think that, uh, you know, it's something I, I kind of learned watching John Oliva for as long as I did, you know, mm-hmm. where he would, John constantly listened. He would listen to music and watch sports and, I would watch how, you know, he would, what's the 
better good word I could use for it. I guess I'm going to say borrow mm-hmm. ideas, you know? So he would, if there, if we were doing a record, you always like, you know, especially with sabotage, when you had the stories, you needed a piano ballad or you needed something that was in a ballad form and then you needed the up song. So you needed right. the different types of paint for your picture. And I think John would go and, and, and listen to some of, you know, what Freddie Mercury would do in his ballads and then turn around and, and like I said, borrow some mm-hmm. of the feelings and ideas from your, from your influences. And I think that's what we always do. And me, I kind of, I do that same thing. If I think there's a type of track, the record's missing. I mean, um, in particular on this record, when um, I was, I wanted to have a track that was like the, the, in the rain song, that was something that was very, you know, long and kind of, had that uh really big glorious kind of chance and and morphine child sort of you know feel to it as a an entire piece so i i actually approached my friend lonnie park who's a keyboard player that worked with me with john west bands a lot of times and he's a great producer. he's actually got some stuff that was nominated for grammys and he does a lot of work actually all around the world he's he's doing a ton of stuff with these different projects in the country of, of india and he's actually becoming like a, a star in in the country of india it's pretty cool but he's a really talented writer and producer and i was like lonnie can you can you help me on that so those piano parts were things that lonnie wrote and i think he really captured exactly what i was looking for that especially the fact that there's no piano player in this band so you know to get that thing is is what um I was really hoping that we could do when I listened to that song. And I think it, it gives me that exact feeling to, of a, of a track that makes this record that kind of has that. When you, when you pull in other instrumentalists like that, or even with your work with Steve and Mark, do you kind of put sketch, you know, like drum loops in there to give them an idea of, you know, maybe this is kind of what I had in mind or Steve, you know, here's roughly what I think, or you just kind of, Stay out of the way. I stay out of the way. Those two are so good at what they do. They have the green light to do whatever they want. Now, the difference between this record and the last record was the last record I had the guitar tracks done and to a click track. And then Mark did his drums. And I know that when Roy was producing it, a lot of times he had to move the tempos around to get us because, you know, a drummer will play Mm -hmm. a different breath than a guitar player. And what I wanted with this one is what I like to do with my solo records is, you know, I will send my tracks like this to, to Brian Tishy and he will do his drums and then mm-hmm. I'll do my guitars to those drums. And what I like about those couple of different things. Number one, you could lock in directly in time with them and make sure everything is perfect that way. And then I'll find things that the drummer did in his beat that the drummer may not even hear because he might be hearing a straight four or however he did. And I'll kind of rewrite my own riffs around his drum beats. So with this record, I did that a lot because I did my guitars after I got the drums and I was getting the drums kind of one song at a time, which was good. You know, it'd be yeah. five days and I'd get a song three days and I'd get a song. And so what it did is it gave me the opportunity to do these things in pieces, which I like, too. I mean, it was really a different process all the way around. I was doing songs individually. So I was finishing my leads and my rhythms and for a single song and sending them out. And I think that that, uh, 
that helped. And I did a wall of guitars on this record more so than I, I mean, there's six electric rhythms in every one of these songs. So you're hearing, you know, literally two left, two right, and um, two center, basically, in, in a centered kind of stereo with this. So there's three different, and I would pick three different guitars for every song, and, and I would just layer them. And it, it made a, it basically made a wall of guitars. And it's a really, it was really fun for me. And that, like I said, those things with a lot of these really tight beats were ones that I had to even spend time on the computer editing myself to match mm -hmm. each guitar to each guitar. So there was a, a lot of, t like I said, that extra time we had, I think really helped out. And it also helped with me with the lead stuff too. And it was, I think that was the one main thing that, uh, most of the guitar stuff I produced myself completely, but there was a couple songs where Aldo came to me and said, you know, he was being so graceful about it. He was like, this one and this one, I think, he's like, I don't know how to say it. I think the guitar solo could be better. <laughs> so I would, I went and I'd listen to it. And I'm like, you know, he's kind of right. And I think that it might've been one of these things where I was so focused on doing the rhythms yeah. that I didn't realize that the lead might've been, just okay you know so i went right. back and fixed some stuff and played some things again and and i think that helped too so that was you know on he did a tremendous amount of work with the vocals and the mixing and the overall production but for me and the guitars i think that was where the um the biggest influence came in because i don't think he he didn't really do much to my sound at all he just took it and basically he said he threw a little bit of EQ on it and it was pretty close to, to what they had because my you know, my bass rhythm guitar sound is kind of the same thing I've been using for 30 years. It's just like plug in straight, play. You know, it's kind of Chris it when you works. When you do that wall of guitars, um you use the same amp across all six of those tracks, and is there a trick to kind of getting it so it doesn't get too noisy, you know, so that you know you still get clarity in the notes? Well, what I have been using because I'm challenged with my own hearing is I, through 35 years of just destroying my high end mm -hmm. on live concerts and things, I've lost my ability, I think, to on a daily basis listen to what I'm doing and go, I, I can hear how this guitar sounds. So if I was to do a sound that was from a mic'd amp, they change all the time as far as where the mic placement is and what guitar you're using. But I use some digital units that I know exactly what they sound like, regardless of what my ears say. So okay. I can listen to it on Wednesday and it could sound different on Thursday, but I know what it sounds like. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm not questioning that. And then what I like to do is I add real pedals on top of these things. And I'll add and subtract them to give extra life or sustain into these things to where I can actually turn my guitar volume down on the guitar to roll off the natural gain and then add in some other ones. And through that, I think, is where you get a lot of clarity because the cleaner mm -hmm. the guitar you play is, the more that sticks out. So I would make sure that a couple of those tracks, the guitars were definitely meant to be a cleaner sound. So I would do some right. through like a Strat and, and the Strat, you know, it had a, a double single coil in it, but it's 100% a different 
sound as far as the the way the tonality reaches. So I think right. that that is kind of what I did. And then when you put them all together, they just made this one giant wall. And I I like to do that. I don't like to trust the digital world entirely like people do. I like to throw in some of the little nine volt pedals and and albums yeah. and overdrives and things that you know that we grew up using and, and making those sounds with you know all the way back to, to Jimi Hendrix with this you know little army of pedals that he always used I think that those things add a lot of personality do you have guitars that you use that are you know kind of studio only obviously when you're tra- traveling with the TSO you've got kind of a, a you know a, a beautiful collection of guitars but you've got to worry about how they look visually and, and you need to worry about their roadworthiness. Do you have kind of that guitar that you'd never sell that's, you know, you wouldn't trust in a road case at this point you work with? Um, there's actually a couple of those I do take on the road, but um, there's some ones that I'll use at home that I wouldn't take on, on the road. And actually there's a guitar that I had used on the previous TSO tour. I bought a, a Steve Lukather guitar and it's mm-hmm. got, it's got active pickups in it and it was tremendously different with my wireless and my live rig so live it was for me creating a lot of noise so where i had dead stops playing in between chords and and situations where i didn't have to worry about any guitar sound like being a noise to my sound man that guitar was creating problems and we tried to work me and my tech with the electronics to, to, to change that. But I guess, you know, because none of my other stuff was active at all, it was marrying my setup differently. So that one I used at home on a lot of the rhythms and leads on this record, but I did not take that back out with TSO just because it was kind of a pain in the butt. You know, it was, it's right. a great guitar, a great playing, a great sounding guitar, but it wasn't marrying my rig. So I think if anything, I mean, we're, there's guitars I wouldn't want to take out on the road, but sure. there are um, ones that I do that people go, I can't believe you keep bringing that one out, like my one old Gibson V that I, I keep dragging out, but I just love the guitar. So it's kind of yeah. like I I chance it and, and, and take it with me because I'm like, well, it's not really going to do much sitting in my freaking basement. So I take yeah, it with me. Let the world enjoy it. When you record yourself, you're doing this at in your home studio. Is yeah. it? Are you a person that that kind of has to struggle with saying this is good enough, or are you a if I can't do it in two three takes, I can't do it kind of guy? Well, the one thing about having the home studio is the fact that you can have thirty different takes of a guitar solo. So sure. I think that that is good and bad because it does make you go longer sometimes and a lot of times I'll go back and listen and the one solo I did that was completely different that I just started and finished without even thinking sometimes winds up being the one you use yeah you know you don't necessarily know and I'm I'm the worst judge of my own playing and anybody's playing for that matter because I don't know if I hear things differently but things that I think are great other people think are terrible and things that I think suck people will make number one songs so I try not to trust my own opinion too much. I just try to make what I think sounds good, you know, and if it if it translates through in the end, then I, I guess I did something right. But that's what I learned throughout the years. And I'm just like, I don't know if I hear music differently than everybody else, but there will be songs that 
become hits that I definitely wouldn't have predicted. So I just try to ignore myself as that ear and just put myself in as like being, you know, the metalhead that likes hearing some guitars. Yeah, yeah this, is, this is why we pay producers to give you that unbiased opinion. Um, any news in the world? Uh, do we should we anticipate more music in the future from Sabotage? Or is that well, here's the thing with that for 20 years? I've been hopeful on this and a lot of what wound up on my first solo record were sabotage ideas like mm-hmm. abandoned was a song I wrote for sabotage and and some of the stuff on the the warp record and you know I would do a sabotage record tomorrow and that's where I've been about this so the fact that last year in the middle of this mess I started getting phone calls from John Oliva and from Al and we started talking about writing and I actually traded music and riffs with John for the first time in 20 years. So do I think there's going to be a sabotage record? I don't know. But is there it's like I, I always put it because it'll it'll wind up being the thing that winds up on blabbermouth. I'll be like Chris Caffrey <laughs> says, you know, it's yeah. there's more of a chance. And it's like, well, if you're asking me what I think, I spent time last year working with John Oliva writing music specifically for sabotage does that make me more optimistic about there possibly being another sabotage record yeah i mean that's obviously because i was working on sabotage music so is it going to happen i don't know i can't answer that question but am i more optimistic about it yes so we will see and um i know tso is focusing on getting a lot of the unreleased music that paul had written you know like the romanoff record and some other stuff done so there's priorities in that. And, you know, when the time is right and if the time is right, then the sabotage thing will have it. I'm tired of trying to anticipate the future with that, because, like yeah. I said, I would have done 15 sabotage records since Poets of Madmen. You know, every one of my records, all the material would have went right to sabotage. I, I did solo records basically because we weren't doing sabotage. It wasn't like, mm-hmm. oh, I've got this dream of mine to do solo records. It was like, no, I wanted to play in sabotage and tour, and we weren't. And I had I'd written 70 songs in that one interim between like 2002 and 2003 and four, and I just started singing. When I got Pro Tools, I realized that I could sing. You know, when I was doing, and actually I started to do the singing because when you write riffs. And you send them to somebody. Sometimes there's like an obvious melody that would be good over this one riff, you know, whatever the the thing may be with that. And um, kind of like if you wrote Iron Man, you know, and a guitar yeah. riff going and not to always play and sing with the with the music, but sometimes that happens. So if I had melodies in my head a lot of times they would be the same melody that John or Paul would come up with. And I'm like, damn, well, you know, I didn't get any credit for writing what I, that's what I would have written. So when I got to pro tools, I started doing that. And in that mist is when I was like, well, my voice doesn't really sound that bad. And then I started singing complete songs and eventually got my deal and then took lessons before I did my first record. And I realized something I never knew as a kid that singing isn't always natural. There might be a Ray Gillen who's born with that voice and there might be somebody that has to learn and develop that voice. And if I would have known that, I probably would have been a lead singer. But it's like because I wanted to sing. I was like a closet singer. My my brother and my bandmates would leave and I would turn on PAs and sit there singing foreigner songs and stuff like that. So I always like to sing. But 
I didn't know how to sing. So I don't think yeah. I was strong enough as a lead vocalist at that point in time. And um, I think that's that's kind of what I did with that. And it's funny because sometimes even with that, you'll when we did the last Spirits record, I think the um, it might have be, even been with the Lightspeed Marching song where the, the melody kind of went along with the guitars a couple of times. And I there was some somebody who had a re- viewer comment online going, oh, that sucks. You know, the, the melody's going along with the vocals. That's not how you write music. And I think it was specifically like Iron Man that yeah. I put in as my response to that. And I was like, oh, I think it worked a couple times in the past. And there were some definite songs that I pulled out that were exactly that yeah where there were big huge like classic metal songs that were just that the singer singing with the guitar if i'm like you know you know everybody's a critic it's like you don't sit there and say to somebody that that's not how you write a song it's like that's like trying to tell an artist that's not how you paint a picture i mean it's yeah. ridiculous. exactly that people have to type something you mentioned the the romanoff material is in the world of paul o'neill's legacy is there much i mean beyond that as far as unreleased material or is like kind of a timeline put together by the organization of when that might get recorded released or is it well a lot of the stuff was recorded but it didn't have vocals final vocals on it and things like that so romanoff was actually written before christmas eve and other stories and that that was the actual first tso record and I think the uh, the need for the Christmas Eve and other stories story to go around the release of, of Sarajevo mm-hmm. is what made, you know, Trans-Siberian Orchestra's birth actually be with the Christmas trilogy instead of Romanov because sure. TSO was together before that. That was Paul's idea for a long time. And Romanov was really the first thing he was planning on doing and releasing. And to me, I say this just because I know the Romanoff record. You know how people always say, like, do bands ever make a record as good as their first one? Mm-hmm. Well, Romanoff being the first TSO record is tremendously strong. And not that the other TSO records aren't. Uh, Beethoven and, and Christmas sure. Eve and other stories aren't great records. But the Romanoff record is really, really, really strong. And I think that... um it's going to have that edge when it gets released of being something that has the, the impact of a, you know, of a, of a massive creative debut record, like a, a guns and roses or something that pops mm-hmm. out. And it's the first thing you ever hear from this artist. And I think that's, um, you know, God bless Paul, whatever to, to be the person that created that his creation is going to be coming out in an impact statement after the fact. And it's, it's, I think it's really going to blow a lot of people away because in my opinion, like I said, Romanoff is incredibly strong. There's some great music there and I'm, I'm really excited for people to be able to hear that. Yeah. I think, you know, I think a lot of people, myself included would love to hear, you know, some of, you know, some of that material, you know, cause Paul's music, you know, touched and John's music really touched you know, the writing touched so many people. I think that, you know, some, some old new music for lack of a better term. Well, uh, when you think about what the, st- the story of Romanov is involved in and, and the Russian, you know, the whole Russian revolution and, and that the power that's in that music, there are some really heavy, powerful songs in there. And I think that, um, you know, there always is with a lot of the TSO stuff, you know, when you go to something 
like the way the band opens a Mad Russian's Christmas, you know, you mm -hmm. have that real grandeur sort of power and a lot of the instrumental stuff of, of like the mountain and stuff like that. But I think that uh, there's a lot of that element in this Romanoff record where it's just got that real powerhouse feel to it. It's a fun listen. I know that I have demos of all the, the original stuff. I was looking for cassettes actually for John to find some ideas that I knew that we had. And I found some of the original Romanoff demos and, and some other things. I mean, I found some, I have some crazy demo tapes that are in a cassette box that I had from the apartment that me and Oliva had in the city. I have like original music box blues with Paul singing the melodies yeah. in his apartment and things like that. So I, I found some gems, which I got to get to, um, to somebody cause it's all on cassette and I, those things do not last forever. So no, no, that sure sounds like some awesome. I want to get them transferred. 30th anniversary bonus material or something in there. Yeah. Get that. Nah, it's not even the beat, even if it was stuff just for us and for Paul's family and, and to yeah. listen to, I mean, I have some moments that, you know, Daryl Pettiford's very first singing of, of music box blues and things like that, that are just history moments. Not even if the fans ever hear them, sure. just that I want everybody that was involved to get a chance to hear what I have and the, Absolutely. and the, the studio talk and things that are there are these, you know, these, you know, members of our family and, and are alive in these demos and they're talking and it's, I think it's stuff that for us personally is very valuable. So I just want to make sure I can get it down to digital and out to everybody so they can experience what I did when I heard it. Awesome. Well, again, spirits on fire or spirits of fire, sorry. Um, on February 18th on frontiers. Uh, we look forward to that. And obviously in a blink of an eye, I'm sure you'll be back at local hockey arenas near everyone. Uh, come this fall again so thank you so much chris i really appreciate your time man no thank you very much and, and have a, a great and safe year and yeah that, like i said you'll blink your eyes and it'll be halloween and i'll be hopping on an airplane to go rehearse again so <laughs> sounds good man all right a big thank you to chris caffrey spirits of fire will be available on the 18th of february frontiers records you can get that either through frontiers website uh, you can go to amazon and get most of their stuff um shipped yeah, for free you know, if you want to go through anywhere else in the world, Frontiers.it, I believe, is the website uh, to get you their site. So you can get it anywhere. And as I said, the vinyl will be out in March. So if you're holding out for that, you know, you can do that. Um, fantastic metal album. I'm going to turn our attention now to a, a young band, a bunch of young guys out of Tennessee. Um, have a band called Naked Gypsy Queens. Um they kind of caught my attention in an email I got from from the band and decided to give it a listen and, and was so glad. They kind of have that uh, sort of revived classic rock sound that we're hearing out of some bands like a Greta Van Fleet or Dirty Honey, and to name a few. Uh, but these guys, I think, flex their muscle in a lot of different directions on even just a, a short EP. So wanted to give a chance to, to listen to it. The, the title song is also the name of the EP. It's called Georgiana. And then we're going to talk to Bo and Landon, who are the, the rhythm section of the band bass and drums, about Naked Gypsy Queens. <laughs>
Ladies and gentlemen, my pleasure to welcome to Iron City Rocks. We have on the line from the band, the Naked Gypsy Queens. We have Bo Howard and Landon Herring on the line. How you doing, guys? We're good. Doing pretty good, man. How are you? Doing very well. You guys have to kind of be kind of bursting at the seams. Your debut EP hits its official release date later this week on the 11th. Am I mistaken on that? Yeah. Yeah, the 11th. So let's talk a little bit about how the band kind of formulated, how, how you guys kind of derived your sound. You guys, um, Bo, you're the bassist, Landon, you play drums. Um, you guys have kind of a dual guitar, you know, sort of attack. But in the formative, you know, kind of getting to know the other musicians, was the sound something organic or was it something you guys kind of, you know, had to sit down and say, here's the direction we want to go collectively? Yeah, so um, it really, like, when the whole band started out, it was, our main focus was, like, Jimi Hendrix and the Almond Brothers. Okay. Like, especially the Almond Brothers. We we studied their their whole live album, Live at Fillmore, mm-hmm. which has just been a huge inspiration for us as a band. Yeah. Especially, like, when it comes to our live shows, we mm-hmm. we just want to put on a whole experience for everyone. After after listening to the Fillmore East uh, for the first time, especially for me, um, it completely changed how I played uh, live, and it completely changed how the whole band worked together. Yep. Um, Cade as, is actually the one who showed us that album, and uh, we dove into it head first. And I'm telling you, man, like it was night and day before we listened to it and after. And so we try to make every live show kind of like a little hint towards that whole album. Yeah, and I think I think a lot of that translates to our studio sound as well because mm-hmm. we just we, we go in there and we just try and knock it out as raw as possible. Is there something in particular, uh, uh, you know, from a percussion standpoint, Landon? You know, obviously yeah. you've got two percussionists, you Jay Moan and um, Butch playing on on that album is there something that that you could kind of pinpoint to say here's you know before how landon played the drums and after listening to things i've tried to incorporate that you know maybe a drummer might only understand but something tangible um i think uh with our first album that we ever made which was recorded at this studio in franklin Mm -hmm. um it was we released it independently um, on my playing on that album, I was a lot less experienced, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just playing along because I like to. But with when we recorded this new EP with, you know, these new producers, it was like we were working under a microscope. And, like, you know, you just... I, I tried so hard just to, like, take it all in. Because I learned a lot from Al. He was one of the engineers there, and he was saying, like, you know, you don't have to crash so hard on the symbol like you mm-hmm. think you do. It's it's just, you know, use more finesse. And I, I think I just learned a lot about control uh, playing with, you know, recording in Rust Belt. Mm-hmm. Was, was Mitch Mitchell, you, you guys mentioned Jimi Hendrix, and I think of Mitch Mitchell was kind of a, maybe at least to me, I'm not yeah. a drummer, a, a bit more bombastic in his playing. Was, was that something that was a little more akin yeah, to your so, natural style? Yeah, so, like, 
early on when I started, I was definitely into like Keith Moon mm-hmm. and Mitch Mitchell. Keith Moon, he's I mean like I'm pretty sure the the animal from Muppets <laughs> yeah. was based off of Keith Moon. Absolutely. It's like <laughs> how bombastic he is and I just always love that. Um I love Mitch Mitchell too because he's also very jazz influenced mm-hmm. and he just adds so many cool like little jazzy fills that wouldn't normally work in a rock song. And I just I love him for that. You guys um, kind of cut your teeth in the in the Nashville music scene, and is there a sense when you rise to prominence in Nashville because it's become the epicenter of really American music right now that that was the hard part in the trajectory of the band was kind of getting over the local hump as opposed to taking on the rest of the 49 states, you know, you feel like you almost kind of made it because you've, you've come out of Nashville? Um, in a way. So with Nashville, it was it was a daunting task because we, mm-hmm. we started out in Franklin, Tennessee. So we, we hit all the bars in Franklin. We played, uh, you know, at all the local venues here in Franklin. And then we were like, you know, we just kind of looked at each other and said, well, we just need to hit the big dog now that's, that's Nashville. And I think we've done a pretty good job with doing that. I, I still think we have a, we still have a, you know, a minute to go, mm-hmm. you know, especially in Nashville. Um, cause Nashville is just such a, a huge beast to conquer, to conquer. Yeah. And, um, but I think we did put our foot in the door pretty good. Uh, you know, especially with a lot, a lot of the, uh, Belmont college students, right. uh, they love us and, and it's really fun to see them come to our shows. But, you know, it's it's fun when you're playing a show in Nashville and you're you're experiencing, you know, stage diving and people crowd surfing and, you know, mosh pits, you yeah. know. And uh, that's just something that I've always wanted to see at one of our shows. And, and uh, it happened. And that's when it was kind of like a pinnacle for me. And I was like, yep, it's on. we're doing something right. Yeah. Is, is it... Um kind of you know when i listen to your music it's obviously got shades of, of many musicians that have come before you you know you mentioned your, your influence with hendrix and and you know you can certainly you can feel a little led zeppelin in there um the allman brothers um many many other bands um but you know a lot of those bands have a much older demographic but you're mentioning playing in a college do you find you know guys i mean you guys aren't old by any stretch now that that there are more and more young people kind of coming around to this kind of purely organic rock music yes um especially with high schoolers now high schoolers are from what i've my, both my brothers and I are in high school so um i'm always hearing the music they're listening to and you know for a long time rap has been you know conquering this whole generation mm-hmm. uh and it's interesting now to see that rap music is slowly turning into rock and roll mm-hmm. because they're putting a lot of rock and roll influences into this new era of rap right. and where you're seeing you know tons of people going crazy to a guy on stage who's rapping but he has a full band behind him yeah. so it's it starts to feel like it, they're turning it's turning towards like a rage against the machine type of thing yeah so Yes, we're seeing a lot of younger people come into our shows um, and having a blast, but 
also we're seeing a lot of older people too. Yeah, it's a very good mixture of both. Like we get, we're pretty well received uh, from the older and younger generation. And that's a great spot to be in. You see a lot of, you know, we'll talk to bands that have been doing this for 30, 40 years, and they'll talk about how they're starting to see younger audience, you know, kind of creeping in. And it's great to hear, you know, you guys. I think of a band like Dirty Honey, who, um, you know, I saw go over extremely well firsthand with the Black Crows. You know, you take an audience from people who grew up listening to a band that really kind of hit their pinnacle in the 90s, so their audience is, you know, in their 40s and 50s. But then, you know, these 20-something guys come out and just, you know, bring bring everything they have and really win over, you know, what might be a cynical crowd. So it's really nice to see that. And, you know, it's refreshing to hear, you know, the instrumentation. You know, I've, I've been to shows recently where it'll be a singer and a guy with a MacBook, you know, will be the entire live ensemble. Um <laughs> You know, so it, it's great to see a twin guitar and a real drums and a real bass, and uh, you know. Yeah, we. Um, it's always like it was almost like it happened overnight when it, when the younger audience came in, mm-hmm. because when we were playing here in Franklin in the, at the beginning, beginning when we were doing a lot of blues and everything, which is awesome. I actually kind of want to bring some more of that back, mm-hmm. but. Um, we had majority of it were, you know, older people than us, you know, nowhere yeah. close to our age. And that was awesome because they were, they were seeing something that they haven't seen since. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and then it was like almost overnight where we play a venue in Nashville and then it's just, boom, there's just, there's tons of people here that are in college and they're, they're having a great time. And like when we opened for, um, soul asylum at the Cowan, Mm-hmm. There were, you know, there was a good mix of crowd, but I mean, we had a hell of a lot of people there. There, that were, there was a line out the door for sure. Fantastic. And yeah. then, like, by the time uh, Soul Time went on, like half the room cleared out. It was, yeah. it was crazy. That's always a great weird. Like I hate to say that, but it's true. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it's always fun to see that kind of changing of the guard with with bands where the where the opening act. Uh, goes on and then the you know the crowd thins out a bit. That's always a, f- a fun thing to see. Um, both Hendrix, yeah. you know, obviously the Allman Brothers are, are well well known for their improvisational style. But but if you go back and watch Hendrix and and you know Billy Cox and you know even his time with Noel Redding and Mitch Mitchell, well, a lot of yeah. improvised kind of jams work their way into Jimi Hendrix. Do you guys? Do a lot of improvisation on stage, or is it uh, something you're, you're kind of shy away from? And if so, what is the reaction from younger audiences who may never have seen bands improvise before? So when we were like when we were first starting out, we definitely did. We were more of a jam band. Mm-hmm. We were just kind of covering like Almond Brothers songs, mm-hmm. and we we would improvise a lot of parts, but also they were they were more like these jams had structures to them and we would have like certain points of the jams but in between that we we would have room to like improvise right and all that stuff we we don't like we don't jam as much in our live set recently um 
I would love to. And I yeah. think we're going to try and bring that back. The yeah. reason is, is because uh, we haven't been really going down that road recently because mainly it's just we have, like, important people in the crowd that we're trying to um, impress with these songs. Sure. And so, you know, it's straight to the point. Um, but when we do break out in a jam, which happens, you know, it hasn't happened in the last couple of months, but it's had, it has happened before. It is um, incredible <laughs> to watch these, like, these younger kids. They're just, they don't know what to do. They're just, like, swaying, and they're just, like, they're grooving, and they, they don't get it. They're, yeah. they're just, like, comparing us to Pink Floyd for a second, I'm, and that's a big, you know. Yeah, take that, honor, but Take that any day you can get it. You, you think about, I mean, so many bands and, and that the, you see nowadays, you know, between, I mentioned, you know, the bands that perform with their iMacs um, or MacBooks and, but, you know, even, even the big, you know, bigger artists that you see, you know, the video screens and the, in a lot of the visual elements of a live show kind of hinder their ability to kind of go into any kind of improvising. Um, you know, you've got to play to the mm-hmm. essentially to the click track so the, the the video behind you lines up with what you're, you know. And, and it's almost a shame because you know you 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 mentioned the Fillmore uh, shows. You know, you don't see the 23 minute songs, you know, and, and like that anymore. Um, outside of you know Fish and, yeah. and some other you know notable exceptions, but it's neat to see that. Yeah. Um, as far as promoting the album, obviously you guys have. If, played in, in the, the Tennessee area. Do you have plans to kind of take this on the road? Um, you know, this is, this is kind of the music that screams, you know, get these guys in front of a, you know, a touring act and, and this would really explode. Do you have plans like that at the moment? Yeah, we do. Uh, we're, we're still trying to get all the, the little things put together, but we're trying to get a whole tour going on around the States this year and we're actually looking into going over to Europe maybe towards the end of the year yeah that's... yeah uh, we're thinking maybe Europe around it's right now we're kind of thinking it's going to be either October or September area yeah. but um, there's just so many things going on in Europe that's making it hard you know yeah but yeah. there's also we have a we have a very big fan base in Italy and and um Every, I don't know, there's some other countries in Europe that's pretty up there, but... Um, Italy, I mean, Europe just loves rock way more than the U.S. Yeah. That's just it, how it's always kind of been for some reason. It's almost like American fans want the validation that you're a certain quality of band before they'll ex- even take the time to listen to it. Um, you know, where it's, it yeah, does seem you're, that... You're 100% right. Yeah. You know, we need someone to tell us that you know, a, a Greta Van Fleet is worthy of our time before we're going to take the time to listen to it and decide for ourselves. Um, yeah. But, you know, and, and at least, I mean, there's the audience there. I, I know many bands seem to flourish, uh, you know, in the Germanys and, and, you know, some of the festivals and things like that. So, um, you know, it would, like I said, it would still be fantastic to see you guys get, you know, you know, a, a theater tour with somebody or, you know, something like that to get the word out about this. Um where can folks find out about the band? What's the best avenue for you? Are you guys a Snapchat band or a Instagram band, or you just uh, try we're, to... we're mainly? I mean, we we kind of have all social media, but we're we're mainly active on Instagram. Okay. 
That's like our main source, I guess. That's almost you know, like... And also, we have our... I'm sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, sorry. I was going to say, that's almost like asking oh, you how old that. you are. <laughs> you know, basically, you know, if you were saying... Yeah. If you're on Facebook, then you're, you've got to be over 30. If you're on you know, Instagram... Or... Yeah. Well, what's good about all these things is that, you know, there's always a button. <laughs> so yeah. it's like you can, you can put a picture on Instagram, and then you'll have a button that will immediately put it all on your other... In, in, um, social media networks and uh you know and and also it's like if people want to just go straight to the core they can just go on our website nakedgypsyqueens.com because that way it's easier to you know merch is right there and then when the album comes out on the 11th they can order it through the website or pre-order it now and will you have physical copies of the the media you know vinyl or cds cassettes whatever yeah we we have uh we, we do have vinyl coming out Awesome. That you can pre-order. Wonderful. I'm looking at one right now. <laughs> that's got to be uh, that's got to be a trip to, to to look at your own vinyl. I always admire folks oh, who can yeah. say that. You know, I've got the pressing of that. That's that's really cool. Yeah, it was wild just to like hold it. Yeah. The first time taking it home and, and and putting it on the record player and just cranking it yeah. was incredible. And because yeah. uh, I don't know, man, this, I heard. The rhythm section's super good on the vinyl. Um, I was hearing things that I didn't even know Landon did. Yeah. On like just by you know you can listen through it your phone in a car and yeah. it's still kind of but for me I was hearing things that I had no idea Landon did on the record through my my uh, my system that's from the early nineties. Yeah. yeah. There is that is that the benefit to vinyl. I mean it's not maybe as portable and it's. Not as accessible as your streaming services, but there's a reason why I think people are, are come around so heavily to it. Is you know sonically, you know even with a mildly decent system, you know the sound quality can be so so nice. So, Bo and Landon, I want to thank you guys so much again. The 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 EP comes out on the 11th. Uh, NakedGypsyQueens.com. Uh, you've got a couple videos to watch, and, and uh, having listened to the EP in its entirety, I can say without hesitation, it's fantastic. It's got a, a nice variety of, of kind of slamming rockers and some really atmospheric sort of uh, songs. So I, I wish you guys all the best, and hopefully we'll be seeing you guys in Pittsburgh before too long. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. All right, at the top of the show, we promised you a giant episode of Iron City Rocks. We hope we delivered for you. Obviously, a very wide array of music from the synth, electronic, pop, um, morose kind of Gat Von D music through the metal of Chris Caffrey, Spirits of Fire, uh, the hard-driving classic rock of the Naked Gypsy Queens. I hope you enjoyed that variety. Uh, you can always drop us an email, ironcityrocks at gmail.com. Let us know. Do you like a wide array of musicians on one episode. Would you prefer we stick to one sort of subgenre per episode? Love to hear that feedback. Again, Kat Von D, 28th February, Thunderbird Cafe. You can check out the debut of her tour. Ought to be a fantastic um, live show. Uh, the, the visual imagery of our videos is fantastic, so I can't imagine what it's going to look like on stage. Ought to be something to behold. Uh, Spirits of Fire, that debut album, or I'm sorry, not the debut, the sophomore album from that band, will be available the 18th of February on Frontiers. And the Naked Gypsy Queens, by the time you hear my voice, that EP is available now. Uh, So if you like the song we played for you, there's several more on there. 
and you know follow up with them on social media show them some love uh, all we'll have links to all these bands in the show notes at ironcityrocks.com we are on all the social media platforms as iron city rocks so uh, if you're a facebook and instagram or youtube hell we're even on um snapchat and uh, tiktok although you're not going to see videos of me dancing well maybe we're not going to rule out anything so please feel free to hit us up hit the website ironcityrocks.com for all the information on the show I want to thank you so much for listening it's been an absolute pleasure until next time